Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Do Be Gay. In this episode, I speak with Stephen Post from Last Prisoner Project. I hold this episode very close to my heart. I think it is extremely important and breaks many stigmas that surround mental health, cannabis, and the LGBTQ community, especially with 420 being this week. I think this conversation is something that needs to be had in all families, all companies, all brands, anything that is related to cannabis. We are profiting off of this plan, and there are many, many people in prison still to this day for nonviolent cannabis offenses. So I urge you to please check out the multiple links I provided in the podcast description to help donate, give back, and support Last Prisoner Project and their efforts. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. Here is Stephen Post from Last Prisoner Project. Yeah, so as you said, thank you for having me on, Katie. And I serve as the campaign strategist at The Last Prisoner Project. The Last Prisoner Project is a national nonprofit where we work on cannabis criminal justice reform. So what we do is we utilize a three-pronged approach to secure the full freedom of the communities that we serve. So through intervention, advocacy, and awareness campaigns, LPP works to redress the harms, both past and continuing, of these unjust laws and policies. So I've I've been really fortunate to to come to the Last Prisoner Project team. I just joined at the start of the new year. And prior to that, I'd been with the CDC actually doing some COVID-19 work. And I had recently graduated back in almost a year ago now with my Master's of Public Administration from The Ohio State University. So... Oh, awesome. Well, congratulations. What what led you into getting involved with not only Last Prisoner Project, but the, the cannabis industry? Yeah, so I'd say cannabis has been a part of my life for quite a long time now, almost going on t- 10 years. I can remember the first time I uh, smoked uh, back a sophomore year in high school in the, the backseat of a car with some of my other high school friends out of a an apple pipe. And so uh, it's been quite a while that I've been on this journey with cannabis, but I would say it wasn't really during or until my time uh, at Ohio State that I really got to focus more on the professional side of this. So I had seen disparities and and seen uh, firsthand through uh, my community and and friends in high school. I went to a pretty urban high school that uh, other folks were treated differently uh, around cannabis than I was as a a white man. And so um, I think taking the leap to begin to learn um, more of the facts and the history behind cannabis criminalization was the first step that I took um, in terms of a class uh, at OSU. And uh, from there, I was lucky enough to kind of get into the drug space generally um, by working on some opioid addiction policies. Um, the state of Ohio is a place where that, that's been hit pretty hard. And so that was actually my, my first step into the drug policy space. And from there, I, I kind of took it one step further and realizing that that cannabis is a, an alternative that can really be used for a lot of folks um, that suffer from opioid addiction and, and some of these other um, both mental and physical illnesses. And so uh, I can kind of continued my research um, through my master's of public administration, um, where I did focus on drug policy and uh, cannabis research specifically. Um, 
I was able to work uh, at a company called Battleground Strategies, where we worked um, on the public relations side of the Ohio Medical Marijuana Program, so helping uh, start up some of the dispensaries there and launch those uh, and get them going in terms of public relations. And then I was also able to work with the Ohio State University's Drug Enforcement and Policy Center um, as a graduate research associate there. And that was really where I got my, my biggest taste of cannabis policy. And we actually did a, a lot of research around previously illicit drugs and drugs that are currently being legalized throughout the United States. And so I felt very lucky to, to have the opportunity to do that type of research, especially under the leadership of Professor Douglas Berman, who he actually serves on the Last Prisoner Project Legal Committee. And so um, through those connections, I, I was really happy to, to arrive at LPP and, and kind of continue to be able to, to further this research and really further this work on the ground, um, which has been my more favorite part of this job is, is getting to hear the stories of our constituents and, and do the advocacy that can really help them get out from behind bars. And so uh, very passionate about cannabis policy as a whole and excited to see where the journey takes me. Wow. All amazing stuff. Yeah. It's funny you say that you, the first time you smoked was out of an apple. I think that was the <laughs> second time I smoked. I think everybody who is a consumer can like look back to their past and the first time they did. Mine um, was an Arizona can. <laughs> My friend whipped out a, a dime bag and I didn't even know like cannabis was like a flower. I, I was just so naive to, to like just drugs in general. And I remember he like whipped out a little baggie of flour and I was like, what are, am I supposed to eat this? Like <laughs> what do I do with this? And then we made like a little shindig with um, an Arizona bottle, but yeah, I, I've learned throughout my process, you know, I think a lot of people unknowingly has turned to cannabis to help with things such as like mental health. And I know so many people who struggled with opioids or drugs uh, related to that. And cannabis was something that really helped bring them back. So I, I honor all of the good work you've done and that you continue to do because I think it's super important just in like a worldly level, but also a personal level. I also wasn't really aware until I met the team out in Jamaica, the Last Prisoner Project team, of what mm -hmm. was really going on <laughs> behind the scenes and within yeah. the prisons. So I feel that not not enough people are aware of what's happening and you know sure. in prison. Can you shed a little bit more light on that? What people should know about the prison system as far as cannabis and those who are in prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses? Yeah, I mean, it, it's truly a, an atrocity to, to see what has happened as cannabis has been legalized. I think a lot of folks don't really realize that there are still tens of thousands of folks sitting behind bars currently, not even for distribution or larger scale distribution of, of cannabis, but even just for simple possession. And, and so it's been really eye-opening for me to go past this area of just research and kind of seeing the, the history behind this. We know that cannabis criminalization has been uh, racialized and used as a way to hurt Black and Brown communities since the, the early 1930s when it was used as a way to, to suppress Mexican immigration. And so I, I think it's just been interesting that if you look back at the history, uh, you can really see from decade to get decade how, how cannabis has continued to be 
criminalized uh, in the U.S. And so moving to a space where we're now moving to full legalization, I think it's really important to keep that criminalization piece in, in front of mind because it, it's just the biggest hypocrisy in the U.S. to me right now when folks are making millions and, and billions of dollars. I think it was over $3 billion were gross last year in 2021 from the cannabis industry. And so you see that just immense amount of wealth and then comparing that to the over 40,000 folks that are, are still behind bars, it's just very disheartening. Um, and so I, I think it's important to keep that criminalization piece in front of mind. And I think the advocacy work that we do is really important because we get to talk to these families, we get to talk to these folks who have been ripped away from their lives over something that other folks are, are profiting from and, and doing freely. And we know that the color of your skin is oftentimes a basis for that criminalization. And so we know that Black folks are, are arrested at a point at a rate of 3.7 times more than their fellow Americans. And it's very important to, I think, call these disparities out because it's not until we, we are able to recognize these things and help other folks recognize these things that we can really take a lot of action. And that's why public awareness that Last Prisoner Project does is so important because uh, it's not just an individual level, but we really hope to empower all of our, our supporters to um, take these direct actions, call your governors, call these DAs, call these folks and email them and, and let them know that this isn't okay. And that without taking action on these things, we're, we're never going to be able to, to realize this idea of American democracy that all folks are created equally. And so I just think it, it's something that's really important to, to keep in front of mind. And I, I think if anyone were to hear and listen and, and talk to uh, the constituents that we, we work with, it, it would be a no-brainer to them that it's important to be focusing on some of these policies. Yeah, 100%. I When I was working with your team a few years back, I actually helped put together the the PDF on how to to write letters to you know those who are in prison and I read all of their stories and I I, I have to tell you like I cried <laughs> most of the time while mm -hmm. I was making it and I really had no idea and I think there are so many stigmas, not only on cannabis, but also on those who are in prison for those offenses. It's, you know, like I've heard people say, you know, well, they broke the law. So there's that. And mm -hmm. it's not that black and white. It's not that simple. There's way more that's behind the scenes that obviously not many people are aware of. And it's mm -hmm. really, really sad, but it's amazing to see, you know, Last Prisoner Project is making strides to to help these people and to help reform everything that's going on. So at a personal level, how has how has cannabis helped you throughout your life and through your struggles? Yeah, I I think cannabis, as I, I said, has been a part of my life for almost 10 years at this point. And actually really coincided and correlated with uh, my my time coming out. I actually came out my, my sophomore year of high school as well both to my parents and family and friends. And I, I was happy that I was able to, to realize and have the strength to do that uh, at an earlier age. And I, I love seeing now that uh, for a lot of folks, it's even happening earlier than that. And so um, I, I think cannabis really coincided with me experiencing some of these struggles, whether it be just internally trying to come to terms with my own sexuality and what that meant in in relation to the rest of my upbringing. I was the the youngest of five kids in a very, very Catholic family. I went to Catholic school for, for 12 years uh, of my life. And 
was really indoctrinated in that. Like I was part of Bible Bowl, if you knew that was a thing in, in my <laughs> sixth grade. I was like the lead uh, retreat manager for like our Catholic retreat my senior year of high school. And so just knowing how I was an altar boy girl, I was, I was in there, you You're know, doing it all. <laughs> and so like knowing that uh, I kind of grappled with these two conflicting personalities, I think weed was often a way that I, I came to, to cope with a lot of those things internally. Also at that age is really when I had been experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety and able to really use cannabis as something that could take my mind off those things it was something I don't even think I realized at the moment that those were connected. But looking back on that time now, I, I realized that cannabis really was something that has helped me cope and, and continued to help me cope through, through my college age years as well. I think it's been really interesting to, to see that intersection of, of cannabis and mental health. I, I definitely have been on both sides of the spectrum of this as well. So even though I know I've used it as a coping mechanism and have used it even for other health reasons, um, I, I've recently over this past year ran into some uh, inflammatory issues and autoimmune issues that run into my family. And so uh, cannabis has definitely helped me manage some of those symptoms as well. Right. But on the flip side, I know a lot of folks uh, sometimes are unwilling to admit it, but it, it is a fact that that cannabis can be has psychoactive uh, properties and can be psychologically addictive. I think um, I, I struggled with that at points. I'm just coming to terms with how I viewed my own use of cannabis. I think there's definitely been times where I felt like I was overusing or, or misusing the substance and it really impeded my ability to, to get certain things done, especially in that school environment that is very demanding. Um, I, I think uh, it, it brought me to certain points where I actually and done an intensive outpatient program. So six weeks of, of going to intense therapy and substance use training. And I was really lucky enough to be in a, a model that uh, was a harm reduction model. And so it wasn't really punitive or aggressively trying to um, do like a 12 step model, but rather helped reckon, help me recognize really what I use cannabis for and, and why I use it. And also be able to better moderate my use. Right. Um, and so I think it's just important for, for folks, especially if you, you suffer from mental health issues, is, is really to just be cognizant of your use um, and to understand what you're using it for and why you're using it. Because if you're being uh, cognizant of it, that's how you can make sure that you're, you're using it in a great way. And I, I think I've come to be able to find that balance now. Yeah, I mean, I have to, I think that we align very much so on a lot of these things. One, me being um, a part of the LGBTQ community as well, and also going through and struggling with mental health issues and the stigmas on cannabis and using it as a coping mechanism. I think I, I came out in high school, probably around sophomore year too, but it was a very slow coming out. <laughs> I was also mm. like taken out of the closet, wow. <laughs> you know, kind of pulled out of there. But I think that you're, you hit it on, on the head when it comes to misuse of cannabis. I think that there is, there is education on it, but I think that those who are not involved in the industry don't have as much knowledge when it comes to how to consume properly. And it really is dependent on the person. It's dependent on your mental health. It's dependent on you physically. It's dependent on how much water you ha you've had that day. And that also leads to, you know, like, 
water is good for you, but you can drink too much of it <laughs> and mm-hmm. it can have a negative impact if it's not used correctly. And, you know, when I was using it, I was using it unknowingly for the mental health issues that I was going through in high school as well as with coming out. And I think that I didn't use it well uh, during those times because I was severely depressed and I was using it more so to suppress what I was going through rather than to, you know, help me through that process. But as I began to get older and I went to college and I realized that there were people who accepted me and Mm -hmm. that also smoked, uh, I was able to make those connections and feel more myself than I ever have. And I was actually working in public relations in New York City out, out of college. And I remember sitting there and asking myself, you know, what, what makes me happy? What do I look forward to doing every day? And it was cannabis, but I felt like the level I was at then was just to go home and, uh, you know, smoke two blunts and go to sleep. It wasn't at a level of helping people or even helping myself. So that that's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, what led me into the cannabis industry. And I think that the stigmas on the LGBTQ community, the stigmas on mental health and stigmas on cannabis all like really align with each other. And I've been seeing, you know, throughout my life, how they align. And like you said, how to kind of step back and see how to use it correctly and to help not only mental health issues, but also physical ailments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's something that really it has been a part of my life for the past 10 years. And I think even coming and having the opportunity to actually make this my my professional space, be in the cannabis right. space, I, I think that even takes it a step further because you're really solidifying that. And I think uh, a lot of folks struggle with cannabis almost being part of their identity. And I, I think I, I do identify as a, a cannabis user. And, and I think other folks have different very levels of, of where they classify cannabis. And I think especially having it be our, our professional work now too, I, I think, and something to really step into and own. And I, I think by doing that, even folks who may be wary or, or hesitant uh, of the substance, uh, I, I know, like I said, I have a very conservative family and, and background and Folks, definitely uh, even going back for Christmas, and I just actually went back to Ohio for the last week, telling them about my job, telling them um, really openly that I I, I use cannabis and, and things like that. Definitely got a few eyebrows raised, but I, I think at the same time, they really respected the fact that I was able to really own that. And I think talking about it and reducing these stigmas on cannabis and mental health and the LGBTQ community are the only ways that we're able to make progress is by reducing those stigmas and continue, continuing to talk about it. Yeah, I have to agree as well. Like when, when I came out or was pulled out of the closet in high school, I had a conversation with my parents about that. And I realized through that. And then when my parents, you know, found the bag of weed that was in my purse in high school and sat me down and had had a conversation about it, both of those times, I realized the best way to approach it is education. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't even as educated back then, but to really sit them down and be like, Hey, this is what I know about myself. This is what I know about my sexuality. This is what I know about myself and myself when I smoke cannabis and how it helps me. And even when I was jumping into the industry to have that conversation felt wrong, but what I wanted to do was I knew was right. And I wanted to be able to help people with cannabis, how it helps me. And Mm -hmm. I think that 
erasing those stigmas and like you said just having those conversations even if they feel uncomfortable and even if someone raises their eyebrows it's super important you know mm -hmm. we don't feel uncomfortable about you know cracking open a beer but we feel uncomfortable about lighting a joint in the presence of people and that's to me really sad because you know alcohol isn't medicinal but cannabis can be so yeah. making that a conversation and also educating people on like we we spoke about earlier the use of it you know i've had friends come to me and you know mention like hey i get paranoid when i smoke i, I hate it it's the worst and i've been there i still i still go there i still will over smoke and being in the industry i've mentioned to a few people is really hard you know i'll have someone who's like oh you're in the cannabis industry like come smoke like five dabs with me yeah. <laughs> like <Yeah>. whoa <laughs> like yeah. no yeah this girl coming out from ohio and starting to come to some of these la events too like just because it was so stigmatized there was nothing like that that first event that i went to where there was just like dab stations and bong stations and infused food i was like what is this heaven I just walked into out of <laughs> Ohio? And, but at the same time, it was very overwhelming because right. you're right. You're, you're trying to kind of handle yourself in this professional space um, while also trying to kind of be uh, appeasing to those folks and be like, Hey, yeah, of course I can. Um, but I think it's really just important to, to know uh, what you can handle and know your level and, and make sure that you're moderating that and uh, you should be fine. So, yeah, I found a lot of power in saying no to, yeah. <laughs> to another hit. Um, actually my first time dabbing, I was hosting an event out in Colorado for my company Puff Creative and we had a dab truck outside. <laughs> and the dab truck wasn't only just dabs people were also smoking joints in it and it was like this little van I remember looking at my sister and I'm like all right like I'm a big girl I just got into this industry like I, I need to be able to smoke and you know hang out with with the, the big guys uh -huh. um, so you say and she gave me this look she was like you and I had been I had been drinking as well so that definitely didn't help but <laughs> My sister looked at me and she's like, you're, you're crazy. You're going to like be on your ass. <laughs> like you're not going to be okay, but I'm going to come with you and like be there for you during this. And I remember literally taking one dab hit and being comatose for at least two hours during the event. And uh, that was really upsetting for me because it, that's the opposite of what I wanted to accomplish by trying to do the dab. So yeah, I think that there's like, a look on us as being members of the industry that we can handle a lot just because we're educated in it but everybody's different everybody mm -hmm. everybody's bodies react different and their minds react differently to cannabis and yeah and tolerance too like again i if you've, you've been using especially for like medical reasons like myself um, for the inflammation or things like that. I, I, I know I've had to increase my dose at certain points and and so it's just a matter of of really where you're at like you said. Right. Do you feel like cannabis and being a part of the LGBTQ community, do you feel that those align with each other in a sense of, I guess, making yourself feel more accepted? I don't know if that's the right word, but for me, I yeah. No, I, I definitely get what you get what you're saying. I, I do think there's definitely a strong overlap in between those communities. And I know, I think it was some recent studies have said that like, folks of the LGBTQ community are about 30 or 31 percent have, have uh, indulged in, in cannabis or have used cannabis at some point in their lives compared to maybe 12 to 15 percent of the general populace. And so 
I think that just goes to show that LGBTQ folks have to experience and go through a number of traumatic events and, and face discrimination and just stigma when they're out and, and visible. And I think it's something that a, a lot of folks have to find some way to cope with the effects of that. And I, I think cannabis is and can be a, a good coping mechanism for that. But I think as we've talked about it, it can also be the flip side of the coin and can get us in a space where we're worse because we're trying to use overuse that substance to cope. And so right. I, I think it's definitely... A stigmatization as well. Um, if you think about it traditionally in the past, the LGBTQ community until recent times really was and still is heavily stigmatized and looked down upon. And, and even thinking from a societal policy perspective, drug users are and always have been a populace that folks think um, shouldn't be really given much attention and they don't have much power or ability to influence the policies that, that af- affect them. And so right. I, I think it's really interesting that as LGBTQ uh, activism and advocacy has gained ground and traction over the, the, the past decades that you've kind of seen cannabis kind of follow in course. I mean, you think about uh, the history of HIV and AIDS activists and, and those folks that uh, needed to have something to, to use and cope with their symptoms because no one was helping them at that point. And so I, I do think they're in tandem and, and connected and correlated to each other in a, a variety of different industries and spaces when we talk about them. Yeah, and I think that the lines also with Black and Brown folks and the trauma that they've gone through over decades and decades and decades. I actually, my, myself and my team, we took an anti-racism course with Cannabis Doing Good, and they went over that and how, you know, those folks struggle with PTSD and how most of them, uh, you know, turn to cannabis and, and they're the ones that are, are being put in prison and, you know, helping those who are in prison and helping Last Prisoner Project, I think should be on everybody's list, especially if they're within the industry. What are ways that those who are in the community and those who are outside of the community could help, you know, leverage Last Prisoner Project and, and help campaigns that you're doing? Yeah, so I'd kind of align three different ways that folks can help LPP with the three different ways that we work to get folks released. First one is kind of the more basic is donations. We collaborate with folks that are currently in prison to provide them commissary grants and funding so that they can get the services and resources and even food and other things that they need in prison to survive. And so I I think any type of monetary help is definitely important. We also help folks as they come out of prison through our re-entry micro grants. That includes the families of those folks impacted because incarceration doesn't just hurt that single individual, but it, it strips that father, that mother, that that child away from the rest of their family. And so making sure that that we're setting our, our constituents up to return to their families and, and return to their lives in a way that they have the dignity and respect to, to live the life they want to live is, is something that's really important to us. And so that that is always a, a big way that we ask folks to, to help out. The second way is is really through our advocacy and uh, direct action. So there's a number of campaigns we have going on. Kevin Allen, he's a constituent of ours down in Louisiana, who's in prison for just $20 worth of cannabis for a lifetime sentence without the possibility of parole. And so if we don't do our work to get him out of there, he will most likely die in prison because of, of weed. It's just such a distressful situation knowing that 
that little amount can get someone life in prison. And so we have other campaigns as well going Rudy Gamo in Michigan. Uh, we have our New Jersey clemency campaign for a number of our constituents there. And so definitely encouraging folks to, to go to our website and take action and reach out and send an email. We have sample scripts to do calls, sample emails, to send those and really help those folks out. So those direct actions are, are a big thing. And then lastly is really, like I said, raising our public awareness. So we, we would love for folks to share on social media, the stories of our constituents to, to really show folks what is happening because of the criminalization of cannabis still to this day and, and really highlight the hypocrisies. We, we have a number of petition campaigns going on as well that folks can sign on and, and share. And then we, we hope to, to send those petitions in and, and create some, some impact and change. And, and one of the other ways we hope folks, if you want to learn, especially about these constituents, hands-on, we we actually have a, a letter writing program that you can become a pen pal to, to someone in prison for, for cannabis. And so those are all a few of the different ways that folks could help out with our mission. And we definitely encourage folks to, to check out our, our website and take advantage of all those opportunities. It's great that there are so many different avenues, you know, through LPP where people can, you know, jump in and do something and help out, even if it's, you know, writing a letter. So I, I thank you so much for being on this podcast and sharing your knowledge with me and having conversation and, you know, breaking stigmas. And I really appreciate it. And I, I will share all of the links that you provide me, you know, within the bio so folks can reach out and help out and donate and be a part of all of these campaigns to, you know, help make change. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you again, Katie, for having us on. And uh, especially with 420 coming up, I hope this pushes some folks to take a break from, from smoking that blunt and, and write a petition or sign their name and write a card to, to folks that still sit in prison because it's without those folks that really led and paved the path in the industry and, and are, are suffering the consequences of doing that, that, that we're able to experience the industry that we have today. And so hopeful that this will raise more of the public awareness and, and drive some, some change. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Again, I hold this episode very close to my heart. I really believe that if we are profiting from this plant and this industry, we need to give back to those who are still in prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses. It is really important that we look back in history and see how we got here and make sure that we are giving back to those who helped us get here. Please check out the description with this podcast. I have provided multiple links and ways to help support Last Prisoner Project and all the things that they are doing within the industry. Again, if you are profiting from this plant, whether it's monetary value or medicinal value or recreational value, please remember that there are still people in prison for this plant and we need to help them and we need to give back to those who help us. Thank you.